Thank you, Tom. Reverend Myers. Dearly beloved friends in AA and Al-Anon and distinguished guests. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you very much for inviting me. I am so indebted to those of you who have asked me to be part of this conference to share with you my experience, strength, and hope. For already you have shared with me so greatly. I have been so frightened. All morning I wore slippers that I could take my shoes off so I wouldn't shake the heart. <laughs> I'm not frightened of you. You know that. <clears throat> Who could be frightened of you? And I'm not frightened of me. Because Alcoholics Anonymous took care of that 13 years and four months ago. No, I'm frightened as I always am before I get up here to talk that maybe somehow I won't be able to make you know what a fabulous journey Recovery in AA can be. And how loving it is to be a member of AA. There is nothing in the world so terrible as being a woman alcoholic. And there is nothing so tremendous and so gracious a blessing as to be a woman who is privileged to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The change in one is so great and the gratitude so deep. the deepest privilege of my entire life is to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have any words and never have had to describe a feeling that is inside of me sometimes that is so tremendous that it feels like there is a light bulb of the largest variety that is shining and it swells and gets bigger and more powerful and I can't swallow over it. And love, of course, is what it is. But there's got to be a way someday 
to have it communicate. And oh, how I wish this could be the day. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous April the 4th, 1950. It was not my first time to come to AA. But it was the first time that I was ready to hear. I had had a very serious weekend. On April the 1st, I had tried to commit suicide. I had... um, been thinking about this for six months. I had been saving pills for that long. I didn't want to miss because the only time I tried it before was when I was 29 years old and I had missed. And now I was 39 years old and I couldn't miss. (laughs) Something happened that day, something so terrible, a humiliation more grievous and more awful than any I had ever had before. It happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I took 38 grain and a half nembutols. Now, I've always been certain that we need contributing factors, and the fact that it was my last husband's birthday didn't really necessarily have anything to do with it, but it helped. I thought it would serve him right. I was out from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until almost 11 o'clock the night of April the 2nd. I had gone to great lengths to be sure that nobody would disturb me. I lived on the top floor in a penthouse apartment of an apartment hotel. I had turned my phone off at the switchboard and told them that I was going to be away for the weekend and not to ring me. Nevertheless, I was not able to kill myself even with that much. My doctor told me the next day on April the 3rd that I had taken enough sleeping medicine to kill two people and that henceforth I was living on borrowed time. And that's a marvelous place to start. When I came to that night, 
Nothing had changed. I still had the same past. I still had the same problems. I still had the same hurts. I still had the same shame. I had still the same terrible sense of aloneness and self-condemnation. But something had taken place in these hours that I had been gone. I was not any longer afraid. Though I still had the same problems, they seemed to have lost their power. And just as desperately as I had wanted to die, now I wanted to live. And in that period, I had the flash of clarity that I think comes to all alcoholics when they're going to get well. I saw myself for the first time as I really was. I saw my life as it really was. I saw the things that I had done in a perspective that allowed me to free the other people. I had a kind of a sense of lightness. And then I knew if I was going to live, I couldn't go back to sleep. And I knew that if I was going to live, I was going to have to eat. I hadn't eaten for weeks. The only thing I ever ate when I was drinking was popcorn, milk with bourbon, tomato juice with vodka, and I had such a feeling that it did well for my figure. (laughs) And suddenly I knew I was going to have to eat. And I called the restaurant on the corner and ordered a full-course meal. I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, I couldn't get food past here. It just wouldn't go down. I had enough time, hard time getting liquor down, but food just wouldn't go. And yet, with all the after-effects of being drunk, and being on pills, I managed to push that food down me. My need to live was so powerful. I had no one speaking to me. I had insulted everybody that I knew. But there was one awful nice guy who had been picking up my marbles for years. And I called him and said, Don't talk to me about this. Just come over here. I need you to keep me alive. And he came and fed me coffee. And whenever I'd say, let me sleep, he would push me down and back and down and back and down and back. And toward morning, I knew I had passed some sort of crisis. And the next day, I did go to my doctor. And I did say to him, 
I've tried for the second time in my life to kill myself. And now I realize that I have a very serious problem with me. I've called it everything in the world these years, but I've never called it alcoholism, and I believe I'm an alcoholic. And he said, why don't you go to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, Doctor, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous one time. I went, and I found those people so dreary, so apologetic, and no ladies belong at all. The only group I'd ever gone to was an all-men's group. And he said, where did you go? And I told him. And he said, you will find it different in California. He didn't say to me what was obvious, which was, I believe you're different now. And so that was April the 3rd. And somehow it didn't seem sporting to me to go to AA that day because maybe I wasn't thinking with my right mind with all, you know, those pills and everything. And so I said, let me think it over and when I can think clearly, I'll make a decision. And he said, you owe it to me. And this kind of conversation from anybody always had the power to make me run like crazy in the opposite direction. I didn't want to be indebted to anybody. Being indebted to people was something I could not bear. There had been too many of them in my life, and I had run from too many of them. Kindness had to be repaid, so keep your kindness and let me go free. And I said to him, Doctor, why do I owe it to you? And he said, my name was all over all those prescriptions. <laughs> and if you had died, I would have had to answer a board of inquiry. And I don't want it to happen again. And so I said, I'll let you know. And he said, I have an enchanting friend he will call on. And so the next morning was April the 4th, and I called my doctor, and I said, I woke up this morning, and I decided to go and see about AA today. And he said, I'll have my friend call on you. And I was sick. Oh, those pills. Ooh, those pills. Give me a good lusty case of scotch any day to those pills. I was shaken and sick inside and kind of with no head, you know, none. Cotton in there. And I was feeling frightened. And I tried to pour myself a glass of beer and drink it because I thought I should get up my courage for the alcoholics who were coming. And I couldn't drink it. It just wouldn't. And the man called me. And this man is perhaps the most sober, studious gentleman we have in all of California, Alcoholics Anonymous. He doesn't have a funny bone in his whole body. And that day he was hilarious. 
I laughed and laughed and laughed until I cried. I have cried a good deal in this conference, listening to the wonderful people share. I believe tears of this kind are very healing, and I always welcome them. And that day I cried, and something happened inside me. And I wasn't alone anymore. He explained to me that gentlemen don't call on ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous in California. He didn't explain why he didn't need to. (laughs) I got the message. And I dressed in my most elegant house coat. And I arrayed myself on my couch and waited for whoever was coming to counsel with me about my deep illness. And about four o'clock in the afternoon, there was a tap on my door, and standing at my front door were three people. There was a little blonde, uh, aged, middle-aged, I should think, kind of like me now. (laughs) She had on a sweatshirt and a pair of pants. And as far as I could see, no underpinning. (laughs) There was an absolutely exquisite one, about 24, and I hated her on sight. (laughs) And there was a tall, very odd-looking gentleman who was so flustered he was frantic. The little one was saying, no wonder you got blind living in these walls. Who could stand this color walls? Looking around my apartment, which I thought was rather distinguished. The other one was saying, well, girl, you can't go to Alcoholics Anonymous and not get up. said was let's get out of here let's get out of here (laughs) you know the amazing part about it is I have never gone on a 12 step call but I have not been dressed to the teeth so it did teach me a lesson I put on the very best I have when I go make a call but it proves one thing that if you want to be sober more than you want your next breath, which is the way I feel about sobriety and always have, that nothing in the world is going to keep you away from AA. I was ready. And so I felt that day that they must know something when they insisted that I had to dress and go to a meeting. And though I had the leaps, 
I wasn't a shaker, I was a leaper. <laughs> when they asked me to put on my clothes and go, I was willing. I was, for the first time in years, willing to depend upon somebody who knew. And they were, as odd as they were, they were authority. As odd as they were, they were representatives of something I knew would work. And the little one followed me into the closet. She followed me into the bathroom. She followed me every place I went. She kept up a rapid-fire conversation. She watched me with her eyes rolling. And it wasn't until months afterwards I found out that she was afraid I might have a jug someplace or some pills someplace. And how could I know that? Because, you see, I was through. It had happened. The miracle had happened. I was through. And they took me to the old 6300 Club, which was in itself to be my home for months on end. And there they introduced me to people who were happy and gay and pleased with themselves because they were members of AA. And it showed. And it showed. And they asked me if I'd like some coffee. And I said, oh, no, I don't drink coffee. It makes me shake. <laughs> and some bright somebody got me a malted milk with eggs in it. And that's what I, that was my almost total uh, food for several weeks. And then they sat me around the table and they took turns telling me their stories and talking to me about how AA worked. And I didn't hear anything, but I couldn't get over the look in their faces and the look in their eyes. I couldn't get over the feeling that they wanted to help me. And I couldn't get over the feeling that no stranger could come off the street and find this kind of treatment. That it was not any stranger who had come in, but somebody who had a problem. And that my problem, all those years that I had been begging everybody not to notice by anything else I could do to keep you from focusing on my problem, this was a thing that was my passport into this heaven where these people were. The thing that I had been hiding from myself and from everybody else, my alcoholic problem, was indeed the thing that was making these people this way to me. And I had a sense of belonging such as I had never had in my whole life. I was walking on air. And then pretty soon they all gathered up and they said, come on, we're going to the meeting. And I said, oh no, I don't think I can do that. You better take me home to my penthouse. <laughs> And they said, you said you would do anything. And I said, that's right, I will. And so we went to the Beverly Hills group. That was my first meeting. 
The place was packed to the rafters and everybody was talking and talking and laughing and carrying on and I couldn't get over it. This was a serious matter and something to be ashamed of and here were all these people having a blast. (laughs) And I forgave my sponsor instantly because everybody adored her. Even this get up. (laughs) And I saw beautifully dressed people with love. And that was the night that I met the people who have been so dear and so important and so wonderful in my sobriety. More people put their arms around me and took my telephone number than you can shake a stick at. More people came up and said, keep coming back. This program works. Elsa and Chuck were there that night. And they became my mama and papa in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they put their arms around me. And they said, come and see us. It was over two years before I could accept Elsa Chamberlain's invitation to come and see her. Because though I could accept all the help in the world from the alcoholics, you non-alcoholics, I was scared to death of. Because you see, I thought, if you really knew all about me, you wouldn't want me. And I didn't feel like I had a right to inflict myself on you until you knew all about me. It wasn't cricket somehow for me to expect anything of you. And your consideration was darling, but I can't accept it. Thank you very much. And that was the night that I began playing that marvelous game that all alcoholics play. Is she one? (laughs) Is he one? And I was always wrong. The alcoholics got away scot-free. They looked younger. They looked as if they had no cares or worries. I couldn't get over it. And then we sat, kind of in the back, and I was in the middle, and a lot of people on both sides to keep me from running. (laughs) And the leader said, if there's anybody here for the first time and you're nervous, sit on your hands, and I was home free. Because that was exactly true. Those hands were still flapping and sitting on them was marvelous. There was, there was a lot going on up in that podium. They were getting up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. All kinds of people doing something. But it was the last speaker who carried the message of sobriety to me. He was a man named Ben with a beautiful, wide, gorgeous smile and a serene face. And he was happier than anybody I had ever seen in my whole life, bar none. And he spoke in the most beautiful, dulcet tones. And his language facility was magnificent. And all through his talk, he didn't talk about what had happened to him. He talked about how he felt. 
And it was the first time I had ever heard anybody in my life describe how I felt. He told it. He told all about how necessary it was for him to put on a front to keep people from realizing how vulnerable he really was and how hurt he really was and how how hostile he felt to people who looked comfortable and who seemed to have it made and how how he wanted so desperately to believe like they believed and how he'd been raised in a Baptist parsonage and and had known about God as the world knew about God and believed in God from the time he was a child, but that he hadn't been able to believe it because his insides didn't say yes to it. And this was the story of my life. This was the story of my life. This terrible need to pour this this love that was inside of me out and yet a feeling that there wasn't any place I could give it because you believed something I couldn't believe and you lived according to something that was mysterious to me and I didn't understand that I could find something that I could believe in for my very own and here was this man telling my story that he looked every place in the world for an answer to his alcoholism. And that when he'd come to this program, they'd said, you'll find a God of your own understanding. And he'd said, I looked forward so greatly for an answer. And now I'll have to look someplace else because I don't understand God. And then he said that he had found finally an understanding for him. And he took the Alcoholics Anonymous book up and he shook it with vigor. And he said, I will positively guarantee you anybody who's here for the first time that if you will work these principles to the very best of your ability, not anybody else's ability, but your ability, Not only will you find sobriety, but you'll find a life more magnificent than anything you ever envisioned. And I believed him. And then he said, I have come to know that there are no good or bad people in this world. There are those who know and those who do not know. And my antenna went right straight up out of my head and I caught it. And it was as though he had said to me, Thy sins be forgiven. Go and sin no more. For in a flash I saw. I had been one who didn't know. And all my life people were divided in good and bad people. And somehow in my early youth I'd gotten the idea that the good ones had a special way and it was all unrolled for them. And the bad kids like me had to pay the price for all those ancestors back yonder. (laughs) And all I knew was that I must have had the worst set in the whole world. (laughs) And I was paying a bitter price. And that night... 
I didn't know that night. All I knew that night was that I could become one who knew. The guarantee of sobriety, the guarantee that I could find a way to live that would keep me from drinking, that would bring me a life more tremendous than anything I had ever envisioned, and that I could become one who knew. And I tell you, I gave Ben's talk for years and years and years because it was the talk that brought me out of the darkness. And now I have fallen in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. And now I've fallen in love with Alcoholics Anonymous and its people. And now all I want to do is just live so all of you will approve of me and then you'll let me be your friend. And in that first year in AA, I was on the highest honeymoon and the broadest happy journey that anybody's ever been on. When Ruth was talking the other night about sailing up in, the, in, in, her, in her AA, I thought, that's absolutely the truth with me. That's what happened. I made all my amends in the first week. <laughs> I wrote all my ex-husbands. <laughs> I even wrote my ex-mother-in-laws. <laughs> I telephoned long distance more than I used to when I was drinking, and that's something. <clears throat> I was absolutely surrounded by love, and I couldn't give it away fast enough. But you know, I was allowed so many privileges in AA. I have come to know one tremendous thing, and that is that we get what we're putting out. And my eagerness, and my desire for sobriety, and my intensity to find out what it was that you had, that motivated you, my my every breath was to find out how to be this person that I felt the people were who had found the answers in it. I had a passion for God now that was something just amazing. Oh, I wanted to find out what this book was about. And they said to me, stick with the winners. Find the people who look like they're working this program and stick with the winners. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too tired. Stick with the winners. And I was never hungry and I was never tired. I was so high that I was just running my legs off talking to everybody in AA. But I paid attention. I don't believe I've ever been so obedient in my entire life as I was in my first year of sobriety. And it paid dividends. Dividends in love. My best friend in all the world who had a drinking problem came right after I did. She says I didn't have to say anything. I was so shiny that she couldn't keep up. <laughs> and she came. And there we were doing everything together. And it was beautiful. And then came the time that
We need Jim Lewis and Jim Hawkins. They need you now. (laughs) And then came the day that (coughs) Betsy decided to get married and move to New York. And we had a job together, a business together, in an advertising agency. And Betsy was going to leave me and go to New York. And, of course, you know that this was about 11 months after I'd been sober. And this was the first tough thing I had to face. And I took her inventory from morning to night. (laughs) Here we'd gone in and persuaded these people to open a department for us. And Betsy had left and... People in Alcoholics Anonymous did not behave this way. And I told her, I said, you can't stay on the program if you do this. We gave our word. You can't do it. And she said, I've decided to do it. I didn't reckon that love was going to come into my life. (laughs) And I got sick from my resentment. And I got full of anger. And I started going to the doctors to find out why I was sick. And I was so assiduous about insisting that I was sick that I finally found a doctor who said, yes, I was. (laughs) And took me to surgery and operated on me. (laughs) And Betsy got madder because she said I did it on purpose. And here am I facing my first year birthday and uh, pretty, pretty disheartened. Well, we got through that, Betsy and I, because the program teaches you how to get through it. But that was my first bad blow. And I had to learn how to not ever again be ready for a resentment to find me. That was part of my learning about no expectancy. That was part of my having to learn that I could not expect anybody to rearrange their life for me. I wish they'd tell us what it's all about. (laughs) My feeling is that We're going to get lessons. Every time we need to learn something, it's going to come to us in a place that hurts us. My lessons have all been painful in AA. I have had to have pain to learn the principles that I think all people must eventually know. It seems to me that all my life I had been writing scripts about things. And they'd always been beautiful. I could write the most divine script. It had to do with, I will do this for you, and then you'll do back this for me, and then I'll do this for you, and then you'll do back this for me. And we will live happily ever afterwards because I will arrange the whole thing in that way. (laughs) Now, you see, as long as I wrote a script, and it was pretty and it had a happy ending... 
I couldn't lose, but most of the time what happened, of course, was it didn't work out like I'd planned because I totally neglected to give anybody their copy of the script. (laughs) So I played my part, and I waited, and they didn't do theirs. And this is how I learned this lesson. I learned this lesson that everything I had figured out was that now that Betsy and I were sober, we would just go through, you know, this this would all be marvelous. But I didn't let Betsy be free because I was writing the script. And so that was the lesson of the first year, and it was a tough one. But it was a lesson, nevertheless. And I have been learning it off and on ever since, but never like that. And so I had my first year, and I remembered that all I really had come to AA for was sobriety, and that AA had been merciful to me and had shown me the way. Now, in my second year, after I'd been sober for almost six months, I had done all my amends except one. You see, when I was divorced the first time in 1936, My husband gave me the choice of having him bring suit against me in New York State or going to Florida and getting a divorce and leaving the custody of my only child with him. And when he said this and did this, the whole world changed for me. And I ran. I ran at that time like I was to run a lot more in my life. But that was the first time that I ran from sheer panic. And finally, when the time came, I was in Florida getting a divorce. And my child was living with her father. All the years of my drinking, this was the reason that I drank. This was the reason I gave myself as I went downhill in my drinking. This is the reason I gave myself when I looked across the street to see my best friends had walked across the street rather than speak to me. The reason I gave myself for my second marriage, I'll marry a man many years my senior, and then Jack will have to let me have my child. And nothing happened. Every time anything ugly or unpleasant happened in my life, I would refer it back to the resentment that Jack had taken my child. And though I had deserved many things in my life, the injustice of this was something I had never been able to take care of. And in my second year of sobriety, it became the next thing for me to take care of. And finally, I sold my car and said goodbye to my friends, and off I went to New York to take care of this, this next thing I had to take care of. And when I got to New York, I called up and made an arrangement to go and call on my ex-husband and his wife. And I spent an afternoon with them and told them I was sorry that I had caused them so much unpleasantness through the years because I had, like long-distance phone calls in the middle of the night from Birmingham, Alabama, like um, writing them scurrilous letters, 
Like taking their inventory in places where I knew it would hurt. Like judging without forgiveness. And I made amends to the best of my ability and then I asked if I could have part of my daughter's life. And they said, of course. Of course. Come back in the summer when she is finished with her prep school. Let her finish out her year. Then come back and we'll be glad to share her with you. And they could not have been more loving. And I went back to New York and I called Marion Malley and all the people that had been so marvelous to me in the New York Foundation office and the kids who were so great in the intergroup and all the people in all the meetings. And I said, Eddie works like mad. Look what's happened. And they said, of course. And I was just so thrilled that I was on fire with the exhilaration. And three days later, a friend of mine called me at 5 o'clock in the morning and said, I didn't want to scare you, but the morning paper's full of Jerry. She's disappeared from school. They think maybe she's been kidnapped or maybe it's white slavery. And I said, nonsense. She's running from something. I always knew it would happen. And somewhere inside me, there I was in that New York hotel, certain that my kid, had had something happen and she was running just like I was. And my program went out the window just like that. I must say, I never had a feeling of drinking. From my very first meeting, I never thought about taking a drink. My alcoholic problem was removed. But that next 10 days was just desperate. And if it had not been for the members of AA and the people in the New York Intergroup and the Foundation, I don't know how I could have gotten through the fear of what might happen to my child. And when she was found, she was working in a drugstore in Baltimore, Maryland. And when they asked her, why did she do it? She said, I did something and I was afraid of punishment. And when they expelled her, her father said, if you hadn't been here, it wouldn't have happened. And I said, she didn't even know I was here. And he said, I know, but when you're around, horrible things always <laughs> And finally, her stepmother insisted that I be allowed to see her a month after she was found. And I found the most beautiful girl I ever saw in my whole life. And I am prejudiced, but still she's beautiful. She was exquisite. She had beautiful manners, beautiful clothes, beautiful carriage, beautiful everything. And she had a wall of self-protection, just like I used to have, as thick as that. And nobody said anything. It was like a terrible Noel Coward play. Nothing. And I came away with a sick heart. And I came back to California, and I was on the driest dry drunk you've ever seen anybody on. I couldn't find my program. I couldn't find communication. I couldn't find identification. I couldn't listen to anybody. Nobody made any sense. It was all hollow. I sat there and stewed in my own juice. That was November. In December, one of the oldest members of AA and his wife invited me to San Diego for Christmas. 
And I went down, and they introduced me to his newest baby, who was so attractive, he'd been sober something like a month. He was a dentist. He liked me. And we got married on New Year's Day. (laughs) Coming home from Tijuana, where we were married, with everybody else making jokes and being brittle and sophisticated and wise, suddenly inside me I said, what in the world have I done? I've acted like a drunk. And I realized never before in my life had I ever done anything like this. This was the worst thing I had ever done in my whole life. I had never done anything impetuous of this nature. I'd made so many mistakes that who could count them? But never before had I done anything so flip and so, so unthinking. And I was just horrified. Somehow I had a feeling at that point that maybe there was something I was supposed to do for John. And so I stuck it. Until I found out that the reason he fell in his mashed potatoes every night mm, was because he took little white pills. And if you can't smell it, you can't prove it. And there I was saying, John, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he said, no. One night I was going over to talk at a meeting and I was shaking myself to death with this because this terrible thing happened I couldn't talk about to anybody. The old habitat of years was there again. I couldn't talk at all. I couldn't ask for help. I didn't know how to. This was my problem I was stuck with. I had to work it out. And he said, what's the matter with you? And I said, I'm shaky, and I have to go make a talk. And he said, well, here, and handed me out a handful of pills. And suddenly I realized I wasn't going to do him any good living with him. As long as he thought somebody going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to carry this message could take some pills to go to talk on. And as I walked out that night, I thought to myself, Father, I don't know why this has happened, but I know that there's a lesson for me. Teach me where to go. Teach me what to do. And the next week, a speaker came from Los Angeles and said to me, Marion, what's the matter? You look like a ghost. And I said, I have married a man who takes narcotics and wants to get me to take him too. And I'm scared to death of what's happening to me. And he said, your sobriety has to come first beyond anything else in the world. This is what it means by a selfish program. And so the next week, I moved home. I would rather have gone any place in the world than Los Angeles. But I went to Los Angeles because that's where I had to go back and say, I've made a mistake. 
And shortly thereafter, I took my inventory within the next few days, and the first time in my life I ever took it the right way, like the book says. And I came to see the nature of my wrongs and my problems. And I came to see why this had all happened to me. And what I found what? was this. That all my life I'd had a fear of rejection. Now I'd called this an emotional thing before then, but now I came to see it was a defect of character. I had a sense of rejection when my child rejected me. And I could not make it right with me. My ego was hurt. I'd written a beautiful script. I was going to New York and she was going to say, Mother! Instead of that, she said with the most cold New England boarding school voice I ever heard, How do you do? (laughs) And this was not what I wanted, nor what I had hoped for, nor what I had yearned toward all those years. And I had to find out why it was happening to me. And as I did my inventory, I saw that every terrible thing that had ever happened to me all my life had come from fear of rejection. Let someone not act toward me as I had planned for them to act toward me, and I rejected me. I rejected me. They didn't really have anything to do with it at all. It was all I who did it to me. And I saw I had a fear of exposure. I couldn't bear for people to talk about me. If they knew something about me, I couldn't stand it. And I had a fear of betrayal. I had been betrayed once, and so I knew everybody else was going to betray me. But the fear of rejection was what had brought this about. I only know this, that that was the day I began to get really well. And I had to see that I had taken the first step. That I was an alcoholic and when drinking, my life was unmanageable. And now I knew. The reason all this had to happen to me was to show me that my life was always unmanageable. Had always been unmanageable. Would always be unmanageable. Unless I could remember that only a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity and keep me sane. Unless I could find a way to make a decision every day, maybe 1,900 times a day, to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And about that time, someone said to me, go into your closet and pray. And I was so ill-equipped to know what that meant that I went in my closet on the floor every day, five or six times, and prayed. That's the way I began my serious prayer, sitting on the floor of my closet. You know, I've told many audiences that, not because I think I have anything to give to you, but because I know that that was the beginning of my willingness. I don't think ever I have known who it was that told me, but I have always known that it was the beginning of what finally came to be a sense of relationship with the God that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. A sense of real relationship that no longer could I look out there for anybody to do anything for me. That my business was with God, had always been with God, and would always be with God. 
that I could not expect ever again to have anything out there take away the hurt or the pain. That I could look to God for everything and lovingly accept anything from his children. But that I could never again seek from anybody anything. That was the beginning of my absolute knowledge that when God's will is done in me and through me, it has a power that is beyond anything in this world. That was when I first came to know that a mushroom can grow through the cement. And if I have a lesson to learn, I'm going to learn it no matter what I think. I came to realize that God was on my side always. That he walked with me through all my alcoholism. There was no question about the fact that he'd always been with me. I could not turn and find him because I wasn't worthy. I knew, I don't know when I finally learned that I couldn't earn or deserve this. It's not important when I learned it, but now I know it. That there's no way you can earn or deserve anything that happens to you. It's only the knowledge that God's love falls on the just and the unjust alike. I had hated myself for 39 years. I don't think that's true. I think I started out a great loving child, but somewhere all this happened and I got confused. This thing that was God, it seemed always so remote and off there somewhere that I couldn't touch, suddenly translated and was closer to me than breathing, nearer than hands and feet. Through these years, fabulous things have happened in my life. Let me tell you a few of them. Later on the year that all of this happened to me, when everything was so tremendous, I met a man, his name was Anthony Forbes. He married four times and I don't ever want to get married again, so don't go out with me if you're looking for a wife. And he said, I'm all through with marriage. All I want is to be friends. And so we were friends. We got to be such good friends, I told him my entire life history, and he told me his. And now once we told each other all of this, finally the day came that we decided maybe we knew each other so well, and we liked each other so well, maybe we better get married. <laughs> uh, Anthony Forbes was a retired attorney. He retired before they could retire him, he always says. But he was a successful attorney in New York State, and when he lived in California, he decided not to be an attorney. He decided to be retired. He says himself that he, um, he decided to be retired because he was looking for a disease that would make, make it socially acceptable for him to be a drunk. <laughs> he said if he could find a socially acceptable reason for socially unacceptable behavior, then it would be all right for him to fall on his face every day. Anyway, here we were, married, and I've got a man around the house 24 hours a day, and it's almost killing me. <laughs> and one day I said to him, why don't you go back to school and be a professor? You've got such a brilliance. It's silly. You've taught all your life. Go back and get a degree and teach. And five more people said it to him that month. And when you're a member of AA, you kind of get to a place where you hear. There's an inner hearing, you know? People, people speak to you, and you hear them. There's a spiritual discernment that happens. And the last person who spoke to him was a man who had been um, 
who was a professor, and so he became a professor. It required of him that he have undergraduate courses. It required of him that he take a Ph.D. It required of him that he be a teaching assistant. It required of him that he fill out thousands and thousands and thousands of forms, but he became a professor. Now, during this period of time, I went to New York four times more to make amends to my child. Nothing. Nothing. Sometimes not even a how do you do. <laughs> and as the years went on, Tony's in my life became more wonderful, and I became more and more active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And our horizons broadened and got wider, and more, more people, and more heaven, and more love, and more everything, and still no child. And still inside me was some sort of odd sickness. And then one night her father called and he said, come and get your child. And I was terrified. And I called Paul Guilfoyle, who was one of my sponsors, and I said to him, what do you suppose happened? And he said, what difference do you care? You've quit writing the script, remember? And I put my hand in God's and went to New York and got my daughter. And when she came back with me, she was 20. She was a practicing alcoholic. She one day adored me and the next day hated me. There was never any happy medium. Some days she behaved like a saint and some days she was just awful. And everybody in Southern California, hey, prayed their hearts out for me. And one day she said to me, Mama, I'd like to go to a meeting with you. And I said, I'd be glad to have you. And that was uh, February the 28th, eight years ago, last February. And in the Burbank group in Burbank, California, the God that I understand permitted me to carry the message of sobriety to my child. I would like to tell you that all has always been peaceful between us. It has not. I would like to tell you that always we have seen eye to eye. We have not. I wanted to be her mother, and I had 20 years. Somebody else had been her mother. She wanted me to be her mother, and yet she didn't have the kind of regard and love and respect for me that she should have for a mother. And we have had many problems in our life. But the amazing part about it is we've had AA. And when we remember to live it according to Alcoholics Anonymous, we have no problem. She is a fine AA. She is one of the finest AAs I know. The only problem we've ever had is when we try to make a spiritual relationship fit into a human need. I think that we all have to come to this. Where we see it in our families as well as we see it in our friends. Elsa Chamberlain taught me a principle that I will never forget. She taught it to me and I used it for my mother. She taught me to release and let go. At that time, I learned about how to be an Al-Anon, and I will never, never be able to thank the Al-Anons enough for their sharing their program with me. I have an idea that the reason I've never been totally able to release my child on a permanent basis is because I still have a sense of guilt inside, that when she needed me, I wasn't able to give her everything that a mother can give to a child. But it never said in my program 
that I would recover. It's that I'm a recovering alcoholic. It's that I would be given the privilege to help other people find their way. And through these 13 years and some months, the privilege has been deepened.